On today's podcast, we visit John O'Hearn at his home in Key West, Florida. It's his new one after Hurricane Irma left with his previous one. The old oil paintings from his parents' brushes hang on the walls. Good ones, too, as they fully caught my eye. O'Hearn has always carried a special aura around his persona, one that emits calm and peacefulness, as does his home, which surprised me because four young kids are usually ablaze. Our time with John was nothing shy of spectacular, just like the man himself. I hope you love this as much as we did. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. John O'Hearn. Andy well, Mill. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Man. Nervous. Are you? Anxious. What are you nervous about? Talking. <laughs> <laughs> Being with me. You're making me nervous, Andy. <laughs> you know, um, I've known you for a, a number of years, as we all have, but your aura and your presence is so comfortable and peaceful. It's like you're the Dalai Lama. Of the flats, <laughs> I, I don't know how this. In comparison to, to everybody else, of who is running, you know, eighty miles an hour with their hair on fire and they're pushing and they're arguing and they're doing their thing, you slip and slide and do your thing. And well, it's, it's so peaceful and so gentle, and so effective. Well, thank you. What I is mean, what is your approach to fishing? How do you feel about? that assessment. Well, I just think the, the approach to fishing is what the approach to life should be. You're just trying to find balance in everything, be it your family life, your career, your time on the water, treating people the right way, treating fish the right way. It's just trying to constantly find a balance that you're not going overboard on one at the expense of another, which is, you know. It's kind of hard during it's, certain times. It's very, fishing, very Especially like in it's, tournaments when you're racing to the lower keys and trying to get to a certain spot early. Right. I mean, it's it's a day-to-day battle. And I fortunately have a, a very strong wife who sort of helped me realize a need for some of that to, you know, I want a big family. I have a big family. I have a lovely wife. And it's easy to lose, it's easy to lose sight of that in the middle of a fishing season. You know, because you always, part of fishing is it's addictive. You know, you want to get right. more and more and more and more of them. You know, the problem with numbers is it's never a big enough one. Right. And if you focus on that, it's easy to sort of lose sight of other things. And But, but two, a season down here is like year-round because you have a season for tarpon, and then you have certain times of the year for permit fishing and bone fishing and, and barracuda, barracuda fishing. fishing. Yeah, yeah, very much so. 
And so, so, again, so you're always juggling, especially with, you know, such a big family that you yes, have. Yes, you are. I mean, and, and it took me a while, but my wife was sort of adamant that I take weekends off as we started having kids. And I did that. And I think it's one of the best things that I've done for balancing my family and my work. And, and at you the same too. Time. And by, yeah. And make giving myself a chance to recharge. So, you right. know, I work Monday through Friday and I do stuff on the Saturday and Sunday with the family, and then come Monday morning, I'm just raring to go again. Right. You know, rather than having that like on 30 days in a row, and you wake up, wanna like you've been punched in the face, and you don't really want to do it that much. And right. It just keeps the you know enthusiasm there that that can be lost. You know, I, you know, the older I've I've become, the more I realize that in the big picture, the more you can take care of yourself, you're there for others, because you get pulled in so many directions. You know, you say. Well, my fi- my family is my priority, but you've got to work three three jobs to support everything in the house mortgage and the truck mortgage, and pretty soon there's nothing left for you. Right, and part of the, and part of that's choosing. I mean, everything's a choice, right? You know, everything in your life's a choice. You know, we don't drive brand new cars. Right. I don't buy a new boat all the time. I don't buy new engines all the time. All the furniture in this house was bought at thrift shops or estate sales, or honestly found on the side of the road. QS is one of the great places to find. Right. Awesome stuff on the side of the road for free. Right. So in order that I can afford to take those sure. times off. It's smart. You're financially brilliant. Well, that's my wife is. I just do what she tells me in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> I look around your home and I, I just see such great stuff. I see great books. I see great paintings, great oils, which, you know, come from your family members. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at something. I'm thinking, wow, that's really awesome. I mean, similar to things you'd see in museums. You know, I don't have an artistic eye, but I like what I see yeah, around here. Well, thank you. We put it, the stuff we put on the wall. We same thing. We just we like the way it looks. We put it on the wall. Right. And I'm lucky enough that my grandfather was a painter. My mother's a painter. That you know, it's just nice to be surrounded by. Growing up, my entire house was full of my grandfather's paintings. You know, every room had paintings. Stuff. And my bedroom did the dining room, the living room. You know, they were just all around the house. Were they peaceful too, like yourself? I mean. Yeah, my grandfather would say was Calm. like my grandmother was sort of the the matriarch of the family. You know, she was the one you didn't want to cross. I mean, I sat next to her at dinner. They lived with us for a number of years. I sat next to her at dinner. She was super strict about table manners. So I always had, you know, if I did anything wrong, I would get the wallop of no a kidding. fork on the back of my hand. You know, one of those old so, grandmother things. That, so not not calm and, and peaceful, but but but, but my grandfather but was the that. opposite version of that. You know, right. he was just the you know the calm and peaceful one that just let things sort of happen, and you know, which is ironic for a you know orthopedic surgeon. His job was probably pretty intense, and, right? You know, well, they were obviously pretty adamant about you going to school, private school, college. What did you major in? I majored in anthropology. Pretty helpful for being a fishing guide. Right. I was just going to say, so <laughs> was there any animosity from the, from your parents to to your life that you really chose oh, and yeah. pursued? When I told my mom I was coming, moving to the Florida Keys to be a fishing guide, she thought I was, I didn't say I was moving to fish. I mean, I moved to Florida Keys because I wanted to catch a bonefish. That's it. Like I got out of college, moved to Colorado, realized I don't like mountains. So being in Colorado, if you don't like mountains, doesn't make much sense. You don't like mountains? Why? No, I just don't like mountains. I like it flat. I like flat. And obviously mountains aren't flat. That's so. crazy. I know. I'm told it's, I'm told my grandfather, my father's side was the same way. He hated mountains. He hated trees. He just wanted like a flat. Interesting. Plain. So whether that's it's so pretty out not, there, but. you know. But anyway, it's pretty here too. Um, your house was destroyed and you live, you know, a couple number of years ago. 
was Irma. Irma, yeah. Irma destroyed your home. This is a new home. Yes. It absolutely ruined your home. Yeah. What, what was that? And meanwhile, we're sitting here on the cusp of another storm headed your way. You live in Hurricane Alley. Yeah. What, what's that, what kind of anxiety is that for, for you and well, your family? I mean, it sucks, obviously. But, I mean, it's one of the subjects I don't really like talking about a whole lot. But, you know, like, I'll put it this way. Like, I always tell my kids and my wife, and it's, it's always been accused of being cliche, but I think everything you do in life comes down to, it's your choice if you're going to find what happens to you as an obstacle or an opportunity. Everything. Every single thing you run into. And it was the one chance I had to display my wife and I displayed our kids. Like, look, our house just got wrecked. And we can sit and cry about it and worry about it. Or we can just, you know. Fix it and move just on. Just go fix it up and take this as an opportunity to change things for our benefit. And we got lucky. And obviously, living, we live in a great home in a great neighborhood. And, you know, we couldn't be happier. It took work. But, I mean, the point, I think the point of it is, like, no matter what. And it's as simple as, like, I go to a spot tarpon fishing. I want to run to Loggerhead. And I get there and there's seven boats. I can sit there and bitch about it or try and stuff somebody or, you know, find some way to muscle my in or just realize that it's just not my day to go Loggerhead. It's an opportunity to go elsewhere, go someplace else. And you can fixate on the negative or you can fixate on the positive. And I just try to choose to fixate on the positives of things. Right. Because it's funny, I asked um, uh, Linville and, and Dustin Huff about you and Dustin says he calls you the critter. <laughs> you know, he says he'll see a half-eaten sandwich in your truck for four, day, four days much, later. Yeah, pretty much. Your boats are never washed. No, they're, I'm not good at cleaning. <laughs> my pants are always dirty. My shirt's always dirty. I got like perma crushers hanging around my neck. Yeah, you're like a hip, yeah. you're like a hippie born 60 years, you know, too late. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's your favorite music? Oh, I don't know. I listen to a lot of country music. Used to listen to a lot of jazz. I'd probably say now, just sort of, you know, the Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash style of country music. Van Sant, listen to him a lot? A little bit, Towns. not a whole lot. But I wouldn't, music's not like a huge part of my life. Right. You know, it's sort of on in the background, and I kind of fixate like on a couple songs now and again. Right. And listen to them a lot, and then I forget about it and fixate on another couple songs. How about books? What kind of books do you like to read? I mean, I love to read. I mean, reading's a huge part of my wife, my life, my wife's life. My kids, they'd rather look at an iPod, but hopefully that'll change in, in time. But I mean, these days I'm into fiction. I've been nonfiction times. I mean, it varies. It just varies. Yeah. yeah just something sort of catches your attention and, you yeah. know, you go with it. Have you read uh, the new book Monty, by Monty Burke? I have. Yeah. It's what very did you good. Think of that? No, it's very good. I, you know, for me, I thought that story being preserved was just it was perfect. Imminent. It needed to be. It needed to be yeah, for sure. Hundred percent. Absolutely. And it was done in a great way and super readable. I right. mean, to a layman or a you know, you could pick that book up and not know much about tarpon fishing and still be sort of in you know, you're connected, captured by the personalities and the for storytelling. Sure. Do you think there could be? And I do a, a book written about these early days in Key West. You know the the evolution of permit fishing with Dale Brown and, and uh, sure, Steve of course, absolutely. And all those guys. I mean, the whole key, I mean, the, the, I mean, everything's a story, but the Florida Keys fishing has so many compelling stories that, that are just dying to be told that rarely will get, probably won't get told. Or if they do get told me, they're not told the right way, but there's so many stories. I'm afraid they're, I'm personally afraid that they're going to go away. Yeah. You're probably right. And that's a big part of the podcast is to go find just preserve stories. It all, right? Yeah. What's your favorite story? Oh, about so, Key West and growing up down here. I don't know. I'm so bad at stories, man. I don't like You've had a big stories. life, you yeah. know. But what about the book Mile Marker Zero, which I'm sure you've read? 
the early years of Jim McGuane or Jim Harrison right, the, the, and Tom McGuane and those in Guy Valdine, right, yeah, the Tarpon yeah. movie. What did you think of that book? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it was a nice sort of backstory to some of the books that, you know, I mean, I, some of the books that I've read and the personalities you've read about, and I've seen the Tarpon film, blah, 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 sure. you know that. But I mean, I still think 92 in the Shades is one of my favorite books I've ever read. Right. I mean, the language, the story is great, obviously, because I like the Key West, I like fishing guides, but the language in it is just extraordinary. Right. McGuane. I mean, McGuane's book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I second can, to none. I can read that for, you know, just for the joy of going right. through a page. Well, you were the president of the Laura Keys Guides uh, Association there for a while. Correct. And how, what what kind of a uh, of a dynamic and a dichotomy was was that working there to do what you were all doing and it successfully now passed this re- referendum with those with those big ships in in Key West Harbor. That must touch your heart in a very special way to yeah. see that. See that. Yeah, the whole thing. I mean, when I took over as president of the Guides Association, my goal I just wanted to get us organized. In a way that when anything came up, we had a voice, a democratically decided opinion and a voice from fishing guides. And that we also wanted to include light tackle guides, but they seemed to not be as interested in inclusion. Not that they were not that we weren't considering their issues, but most of us were flats guides, so we were oriented towards flats fishing related stuff. But the point of the whole thing was to just get organized in a way inclusive. If you're a fishing guide in the lower Florida Keys, you could be a member. It wasn't like a in old boys, you had to have somebody refer you. If you're sure. licensed, organized, paid, Coast Guard approved fishing guide, you could be a member. And the goal was to get those members, individual voices, every major decisions made through a democratic process, you know, majority, super majorities, whatever, however the issue was, so that when things came up like the cruise ship referendum, or more importantly, like the ongoing sanctuary, you know, the, the sanctuary review that's going on to have a voice in these decisions. Right. Was it hard to get that? It was surprisingly not hard. The hardest part was just on my end. Getting the numbers and to get the family together to have a, you know, a voice of solidarity. The, the, the hardest part was just getting organized. Like fishing guides were good with our fishing, but we're not good with like filing papers with the IRS for 501c3 status, opening up bank accounts. Simple you, stuff like just, that. Just the yeah. stuff like the, the nuts and bolts infrastructure stuff. That was the hardest part. Right. Once we got that, the you know participation from the guides and the guiding community was, you know, Immediate. Yeah, well, kudos to you guys, you know, knowing that yeah, your a lot voice of work has been by a lot heard of by a lot of people. And that's what Willie Benson said. He said, look, it takes it takes a lot of people to move a mountain, and that you guys are doing. Uh, do you consider yourself more of a permit person, a tarpon person, I mean, or just a fisherman? I mean, at times, I think I've cons- – put it this way. I feel like in my career, I've been sort of fixated by certain species. So I moved down here because I wanted to catch bonefish. But very quickly when I started guiding, I became fixated on tarpon fishing. You know, that's all I wanted to do. Right. Uh, the, you know, forget about everything else. I like just wanted to tarpon fish every day as much of the years I could. And then as, you know, after 10 years of that sort of, I just by coincidence ended up with some clients that got super into permafishing. fishing. And I looked suddenly, next thing I know, I'm super into permafishing. fishing. You know, not that I wasn't tarpon fishing, but it just became the thing I was obsessed with. You right. know, finding a way to catch them regularly, finding a system to catch them regularly. It was something I just became obsessed with, obsessed with. And and I have to admit, now these days, the bone fishing has gotten so good, I find myself daydreaming about bone fishing all the time now. Are you are you bone fishing quite a bit? Quite a bit. I mean, you how, know. How good is it here? I mean, in the last five years, it's gone from sort of non-existent to... At times, extraordinary. Solid. I mean, no, not just solid. Like, really, really, really good. I mean, with... It's a short window. You know, it's not... We don't have all... 
I'm not finding all day extraordinary bone fishing, but when the tide's right and the conditions are right, it can be endless schools of fish tailing wow. and waking at you in this sort of, you know, two to five or six pound range. But I mean, how fun is that? It's fantastic, right? It saves a big part of your year. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a good way, especially as the tides are, you know, you can go catch, have a good couple hours of bone fishing, then you go perma fishing the rest of the day. Right. What, um, if you, as you've seen the permit fishing change over the years where this was an impossible fish to catch and now it's very readily available successfully, how, how'd you get over that hump as a guide and with anglers and you and Nathaniel obviously doing it so successfully so well, winning three permit tournaments and catching this year the two pound world record permit tournament or fish, which is 16 pounds. Right, that's kind of absurd. And that record had been held forever with Del Brown and, and Steve Huff. Uh, so the question is kind of twofold. Did you see a certain uh, thing that you guys were doing that all of a sudden became a different game that you were playing, whether it be Nathaniel waiting for fish, fly design with a strong arm or anything, stripping? Well, let me, like, I mean, I think there's a whole, I mean, that's a big question right there. Obviously. Right. So, I mean, I started when I, I moved here in 97, I got lucky enough to get a job working for Jeffrey at the solar angler. And I moved here think, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about anything. I was a trout fisherman who saw the cover of the first solar fly fishing and saw a bone fish and realized I had to catch one. That was, you know, sort of the idea of my career was just to catch a bone fish. Where were you living at the time? I was in Baltimore. And, you know, grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, a place that trout fishing up there, trout fishing. Exactly. Like yeah. That. But to get back to the permit thing. So I'm in the fly shop, you know, the fly shop, the fly selection. There was a whole bunch of tarpon flies, a whole bunch of bonefish flies. And like down in the corner, there was two little sections of permit flies. There was like a regular Merkin and a Merkin with blue thread. <laughs> that was the permafly selection because nobody was really doing it then. Right. What I mean, year is this? This is 97. Okay. So I worked in the shop from 97 to two, the beginning of 2000. And so, I mean, you, somebody would come in if, you know, let's say Nat Reed and Gil Drake, Nat caught two permit a day. It was like the world coming to an end. Like, holy shit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say shit. Yes. But yeah, holy shit. Somebody caught two permit a day. It was like, it was big news. So you, you sort of started with this mythic sort of thing you didn't catch. And I, I came quickly became relatively obsessed with catching my first myself because it was so hard to do. But maybe that's a different story. But so we went from that to flash forward five years. We have the, the tournament starting, you know, the, the first Del Brown starts. And, you know, I think at the beginning, people were sort of kind of like, this is a, this is a strange thing. Like, who wants to have a permanent fly fishing tournament? Like, and then a couple of years of that, there's suddenly more and more interest in it. But I'm losing track a little bit. But and, the point and, is, and people were catching fish. People started catching more fish. And like anything, you got you have a scoreboard with your name on it and a trophy at the end of it. It changes how you're going to perceive the fishing. Right. Because no one wants to see zeros next to their name. Right. I mean, this is driving force. It's not a driving force for the three days. It's a driving force till the next tournament. You know, you see that zero next there, and it sucks having a zero behind right. next to your name. So you spend the next X number of months to the point the next time you do it, you don't have a zero next to your so name. So it, cha it changed you as a guide as it well. It changed me, but I think it changed everybody down here. Right. Having that tournament, that first Del Brown tournament, changed everybody because suddenly we can all talk about how hard it is to catch them. But we all still want to win that trophy, so we all want to get better at catching them. And right. I think that initiated, in my mind, we're, I, I think we live in the golden age of permafishing. 
I mean, people catch more permit on a day-to-day basis now than worldwide than it's ever happened before. Right. And that's just in the last, you know, 15 years. Is that because of fly design, you think, or just more people pursuing it? I think it's more people putting their efforts into catching them consistently. Right. I mean, I think that's just a huge part of it, that people want to catch them and they're going to do everything they can to get better and better and better at doing it. Right. And there's like anything, like any fish, there's a lot of ways to do it. You know, Nat and I ended up developing a system that worked well for us and translates well, I think, to a lot of other anglers, but that's not the only way of doing it. Right. What is your methodology? I mean, it started off, I mean, Nat and I both started off in, I think it was 2014. Both of us were both sick and tired of getting our asses kicked in permit tournaments. Like it sucked. We didn't like it. We didn't like it. First year, we have some prototype designs that Dave Skoke put it. Our fishing was so naive that we were going into the tournament, didn't even know what kind of fly we wanted to use. That's how naive we were. You know, we had these flies, we tied them on. We got lucky. We caught a couple on the second day, only to have Scott Collins and Greg Smith come back and beat us with three on the third day. But that was the best thing that ever happened to us. So we went from you're of, in the game now. Well, we we're in the game, but but it hurt right. really bad. I mean, we you know Greg sat at the desk and waited to five minutes before lines out to walk up with his three permit. So we went from thinking we oh. won to losing by nothing, a quarter of an inch. You know, so we had two big ones. He had three little ones. He beat us by a quarter of an inch, and it it sucked. It hurt really really bad. It really really. I mean, it sort of fueled. Nat and I, but more importantly, it fueled us to develop a way of fishing, not just to go out there going fishing. You know, it wasn't just like, okay, let's tie this little fly on there. So everything became, you know, we started with a basic fly pattern and then it became very systematic. You know, we wanted a certain weight. We wanted certain colors. We wanted a certain leader length. We were looking for a certain type of shot, a certain type of fish. And it all sort of organically worked into, you know, in the, in the year of fishing our tails off angry, essentially. I mean, I feel like we fished angry that entire year. And it worked. And it worked. Right. But the system, like, you know, the system was basically a slightly lighter fly. So you could interact a little bit more with the fish. You know, most permit flies tend to be a little bit heavier, which made them a little bit harder to cast, but also didn't give you much time to interact with the animal. Right. The fly would land. You try to hit them close to their face. Sink real fast. It sink real fast. You're either in the grass or you're hooking, hooking up the fish. It didn't feel like, it never felt like there was any fishing involved. It was, there was no feeding, if you will, like right. tarpon fishing. Right. And this lighter fly sort of organically got there, ended up giving you an opportunity to sort of fish the fish. Because it was hanging in the water column a little bit higher. Right, it stay higher in the water column. So right. you could just keep, you know, you could, you could fish them. You know, it lands, you could swing flies to them, you could deal with current, you can deal with big leads. I mean, it started initially as we wanted to go waiting because it's slightly easier to catch them if you're in the water casting at them. And then we started at that point, you know, let's get a lighter fly so we can go walk to them. Because the water's shallow, we don't want a heavy fly. I think that's sort of the right. genesis of it. Right. But eventually, you just started leaving that fly on and fishing him in five feet of water with that same light fly and seeing the results of how it worked. You know, it's interesting. I was speaking with um, Mahaffey here re- recently, and, and he was speaking about what they were doing differently to win all the bonefish tournaments. And he was saying when they were fishing in four feet of water to mutters, if ever he saw a bonefish come up for a fly, he knew the fly was too late. The big fish don't come up to eat. Right. So he would have the same design tied um, in like three different weight uh, categories. So it was all about the weight. And he wanted that fly to get to the bottom. And his theory was to fish aggressively. If they were tailing or mudding, put it right in front of their face. When they looked up, it was one pop. 
That was it. One pop. And they'd go get it. Right. They'd get up, tip up, and get it in fishing with a clear fly line. So they, could, too, could, with a quartering shot, get that fly in there without the colored, colored fly line bothering them. Have you guys experimented much with the clear line? I've played a lot around with clear lines, and at the end of the day, I just don't like them. As a fishing guide, it's just so hard you to— You lose the fly? It lose the fly. It's, you lose the end of the fly line. It's very hard to sort of for me to interact or try to help my client— and even that has played with them. We've just sort of end up just sticking with a slightly longer leader. I'm going to put it this way. I haven't had somebody catch a fish with a clear fly line on my boat in years. Permit or tarpon or otherwise. I just, really? I just don't like them. I don't like the clear tips. You know, I just like to be able to see the end of the fly line. But to your point, I think the key to those tournaments, right? any good tournament team, those guys who are doing it have a system. Right. And it's their and system. And their method- methodology that and it's, works. And it's theirs. They're not yep. copying somebody else. It's just something they worked at, organically came to. I mean, you and Timmy had it in the, you know, your tarpon tournament days to, to Lou and Scott had. I mean, the, the teams have their sure. system and it works and they believe in the system. And maybe the belief is probably as important as the system itself. I mean, right. if you believe it's going to work, it works way more than if you don't believe it's going to work. And if you believe in this fly, you're going you're gonna to fish that fly. Exactly. I mean, I tell you're my- gonna make it, You're going to make it wiggle. The way and you're going to fish be. it better. Like yes. just, I mean, I tell my clients, like, I'm going to pick a fly out for them, you know, like- I tie the fly on. I'm like, if you you throw the fly a couple of times, you don't like the way something happens. You want to change flies? We're changing flies. Because you got because the because the guy with the, the rods got to have that belief in the fly, right? And I'm firmly think. I mean, when you believe in something, you do it better. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in karma? I mean, I mean, I don't know the the sort of the specific definition of you know karma in the you know the yeah good Eastern stuff, tradition, bad stuff. But I do believe like if you're if you're at peace with what you're doing you're sort of present in what you're doing at the moment better things happen than if you're sort of in the back of your mind have that and i call it the worm you know that that little thing in the back of your head that tells you it's not going to work you know as a fishing guide it's like did i pick the right spot are the fish going to be here they were here yesterday but i haven't seen them in five minutes or as the angler you know you make a cast and it all works out but the fish just doesn't eat your fly right it's always fighting that worm off, you know, to keep the interesting to, to get away from that, like the little things in the back of your head, giving you all that negativity that just gets in the way of success. That's one of the things that Nate uh, had spoken to me about you was that he's never seen you upset. You nothing bothers you. You're like a duck with water sliding off of it, you know, and you just go with the flow. You know where you're going to go and it's you just believe good, in it. It's just a good facade. <laughs> I mean, it's like a duck on the top of his feet are kicking like, like, oh, my God, I hope this works. I hope hope it's going to work. Exactly. But I see, too, that it might have been possibly difficult because I know you're no longer fishing the tarpon tournaments. Why is that? Oh, it just became I always put it this way. I always thought my favorite part of tournaments wasn't the actual tournament. It was the homework you did leading up to it. The journey. The journey to get there. And. I mean, I'm just at a point now, I just don't think, I even told Nat in this year's Gold Cup, like I think it was day four. I'm like, man, I don't know if I got the desire to do that anymore. How many years did you fish that event? I think, I think it was five or six years yeah. or something like that. I mean, it, it, was beats, it beats you up. It's it five does. days, big boat runs, now it's, fast it's, boats. It's less It's less that from my perspective. I mean, that's part of it. It's a pain in the ass getting, right. you know, getting whooped, going past some mile bridge. Thing back. But just the stuff that required me to do well in those tournaments wasn't the stuff I wanted to do anymore. Like, I don't want to sit on the ocean and throw worm flies or whatever fly. I just don't want to do that anymore. It's just not what I'm interested in. Right. And so what that leads is do I spend a bunch of my time with my other clients doing things I'm interested in, catching tarp and the things, but it's not translating 
you know, again, the guys who do well in those tournaments, it starts when those fish start swimming. They're working on it. So by by the end of June, they're they know exactly what they're going to do. Right. And just the last couple of years, I just haven't been sort of. I just, put it, I just don't want to do the homework, and I wasn't prepared. Right. Yeah, no, I know. I get that. Um, do you still have the fire on a daily basis to go catch fish as you would in a tournament? Or is there a little bit of a let off? I mean, sure, you want to go catch fish, but yeah, I, are you still as driven? I'm definitely as driven. I mean, I think there's a different kind of driven in a certain, you know, a, a tournament's only about catching right. a certain number of a certain species of fish. And that leads to you doing things in a way that you're catching, you're, you're going to the spot that you know has fish. You know what they're going to be doing. And doing that day after day after day is a great way to prepare for a tournament. But there's also other ways to do really, really cool things. It's, it's finding like, I these days I have more interest in finding some place I've never fished before in my life. And going there and finding fish. Knowing they're there and you go find or, them. If or not fun. knowing they're there. Yeah, Just, right. Just, you know. And the, the, this fishery is so complex. The more I do it, the less I want to do other places. You know, I used to, in a day I used to run. 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, you know, make a big run to the, these little hot spots that you wanted to fish. And it's a great way of making a day work out. But I'm also realizing now I can run five minutes, four minutes, three minutes and have just the same fishing, just doing things a little bit differently. You know, having the same number of shots, the same number of fish on, on, in habitat I never even considered. So it's like finding little nuggets of gold right, right ev- around the corner. And they're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. So you're finding new spots after how many years have you been guiding down here? Twenty years. Twenty now. years, yeah. and you're still now you're finding. Still find, but I find more and more. This past year, I think I found more this past year than I have in you know the year before and the year before. I mean, there's just so much stuff out there, and so and, much in all species, tarpon and all, and, and all species, yeah, bonefish and and permit. and all species. I mean, it's just I mean, there's so many variables. Like, I mean, tide obviously is a huge one, but fish do certain things with certain wind directions, certain wind conditions. You can only fish certain places when the, the sky is a certain way because you, know, so you, you, know, you need to see or you don't need to see or you need it slick or you don't want it slick or you want it high or you want it low. And there's so many variables to it right. all. And, it, you know, I used to run away from those things to go get the specifics. And now I'm just trying to see a little bit. You know, I'm just more interested in finding find a little bit more of a bigger, like a holistic picture of one little area rather than little eventual snapshots of. Also, too, it keeps your mind really going. Now you're connected on a daily basis instead of being an entertainer of your client and taking them to a spot you've fished a thousand times. Right. I mean, I, I think one of the roles of the hard parts about the fishing guide is sort of balancing my personal desires with my client's desires. And I'm fortunate that most of the people I'm fishing with, I fish for years. We understand expectations. We understand each other. I know this guy wants to catch a lot. This guy doesn't need to catch as much. He's you know, happy to see other stuff. But I mean, on a day-to-day basis, at the end, I'm trying to like indulge my my intellectual curiosity as much as possible while still catching fish. Right. That's what's going to keep you. Because the, the longevity is going to be right. maintained that I way. I mean, that's the. I mean, that's the real joy in it to me. So it's the big, the biggest puzzle I could ever imagine, and you get to put these little pieces in one yeah. at a time. And you know, there's a lots and lots of pieces to put right. in there. As they say, the adage is peeling those layers of onion away. Right. Yeah. So I mean, that's what that really drives me. More, I mean, obviously, the f- catching fish is fun. It's great. Right. And there's some weeks where you're just going out catching fish. But there's other weeks that just somehow they just sort of work out that you're you're catching fish, but you're doing stuff you've never done before. You stumble on it, too. There's, lot, there's lots of stuff you just stumble on. Right. You know, How often are you tying new flies? And you I, t- know, I, I tie flies probably almost every day of the year. 
It's just sort of like my wife's always accusing me of being OCD because I just there's times I just have to do it. Like a it's days, like therapy. Like a days I'm not fishing, you know, coming up, I'm not fishing a whole lot in the next few months, but like getting the kids ready for school, like she's making practice and I'm just sitting at the fly table table, like whipping something up. A lot of new flies? Sometimes, yeah. New I mean, they, the flies just evolve. I mean, I don't ever, I wouldn't say ever, but I rarely go to the, like the tying desk with this brand new idea. Right. It just you sort of tweaks something. You just sort of tweak something. The tail gets a little bit longer. You shift the, you know, color, you shift where you tie something on. It just sort of organically kind of, Change itself, and a lot of it's just trying to do it more efficiently. Most of my flies, you know, I have a really a fly I really really like, but I want to be able to tie it fast. Like at the end of the day, I want a fly to be fast because you know if I got to tie a dozen flies, I don't want it to take me two hours. I'd rather it take me an hour. Right. So a lot of the stuff is removing. Like I had a conversation with Dave Skog about fly theory. I was telling Dave like my perfect flies. I start with something. I remove everything I can from it. Have it remain as effective. So I remove flash. I remove this. I remove this wing. Take away all the pieces that don't matter, and you're left with like this: a hook and as little materials as possible. Have it fish as well as where you started. And Dave was like, "What are you talking about, man? I'm, I'm a, I'm a fly tire. I, I want more. I he add wants as more. many pieces in there, right? So that the guy who's picking up thinks there's no way in the world I'm going to tie this fly, and they buy it." So, I mean, obviously there's two extremes of it, but I sort of lean towards the Spartan, you know. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, when I see you in your life, obviously you're very efficient. Yeah, I try to be. <laughs> as much as you can. Yeah, as with, much as I can be, right. With a pile of kids and and your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, what was it like for you to all of a sudden being in the Widowmaker racing at, you know, 70 miles an hour in a tarpon tournament? Because I just don't see that. Yeah, I don't like going. Being. I don't like going fast. I will admit that. Right. But like anything, you get used to it pretty quick. That's right. the one thing. How quickly you get used to going fast. Do you like boat. going fast now? No, I don't like it. <laughs> but you get used to it. Like you start off like the first time I run his boat in April or something. Like, wow. I'm like, holy man, this thing is flying. But by for fifth day of the Gold Cup, you're not even thinking about it. Yeah. But yeah, I don't like going fast. I don't think you like skiing. No, I hate skiing. I like. <laughs> I don't like mountains. Remember. <laughs> Um, what's the weakest link in your arsenal? Oh, doubt, probably self-doubt. That makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. You know, like there's, because Matt and I, like both of us are constantly doubting what we're doing. Like we constantly think we're not. Cause you're trying to perfect a, a methodology, the system. Yeah. Or just what I mean, we always whatever. have, we always have like, am I right in the right decision? Are we in the right spot? You know, like I always, like, I always want to get to the point, like particularly permit fishing. My goal in a day's permit fishing is to be numb. So when I get to the spot, like I don't see fish, I don't care. I catch a fish, I don't care. I go to the next spot, I don't see fish, I don't care. The point is the numbness sort of keeps me that that self-doubt. Connected. From, you keep, yeah, it keeps me connected to that moment right there. Just sort of just keep doing the job, just keep doing it and, and don't feel anything. You know, I'm, and I'm talking extreme of, yeah, yeah, sure. of permit fishing. And a You're in the zone. It's like a right. golfer shooting 60. Right. So, you I mean, know, yeah, th things are happening. They're going and there's no mind to get in the way. Right. You try to remove all that. And so it's late. I mean, the negative, of course, is, you know, Nat catches a bunch of fish. You don't feel super high about it. But the benefits being when you don't catch fish, you don't feel super low about it. And I think that sort of helps it's me. Finding that equal just balance. That, nice, that balance of it so you can perform at the level you need to perform at. You know, when I first got into tarpon fishing, I had, you know, such extreme emotions because when you hook a fish and you catch a fish, the high is so high and the lows are so low, especially in a tournament when you break one off or lose yeah, one. It's so like, bad. Oh my God, in the end of five days, you're just exhausted. Um, 
And I don't think you can eliminate those high highs until you do it really a lot. And then like you were just mentioning, you get to a point where you're no longer getting quick with the right hand setting the hook. You just slide it, you get it tight, you, you know, get it up there with some resistance and just seat it. In the early years, I'd see a fish bite my fly a little bit too fast, and I'd yank it out. Right, of it, yeah. and I'd look at my hand. I go, I, I would just I, the profanity was profuse coming out of my mouth. Looking at this right hand, don't do that again. <laughs> bad hand, bad hand. Bad hand. Make a shot. <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. What I do you mean, remember? You, you go from these. To, oh God, to I, this. But I think that too is is one we, reason why it is so much fun because it is so exciting. We're we're dealing with animals. Nikki and I uh, loved to bow hunt for big, you know, for animals. You know, I say big bull elk, I'll take any elk. Right. But when you're talking to the animal and all of a sudden you pull them in from 700 yards and he's screaming at you and you kill him at five yards. I mean, you're speaking. Incredible. You are speaking to a mammal and you're convincing that animal to come to you. And I remember the very first shot I ever took at an elk. I, I was shaking and, you know, and. I've done a lot of pretty fast things in my life, uh, skiing at 100 miles an hour for a living. You know, you think that I could handle knocking an arrow. I couldn't put the arrow right. on the string. You know, it was so exciting. But the more you do it, the more you acclimate. Um, but the whole tarpon thing, you know, I would think too, and I, and I see this with some of my friends that want to come down and fish. They get so excited or people who permit fish. They've, it's a dream fish. Most likely, they'll never, ever catch one. How do you convince somebody to get the shot and to get them into a fish that is a dream fish and they haven't done it a whole lot? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a tough one. I mean, it's, it's a problem I don't have as much anymore because most of my clients are customers. I, I, are customers yeah. I've had for a very long time. But you're right. To the case of point, it hasn't always been that way in my career. So you have a lot of people that it's their first time. And obviously, as a fishing guide, you want your first time. You want the guy to come back. The goal is to have him come back and back. And the way you do that is to get them comfortable in catching fish. I mean, I do think the my, the first I fished with Jeffrey Cardenas, my first employer at Solar Anchor, the day after I quit working for him to become a full time fishing guide. So he takes me out fishing that day, and I'd never caught a permit before in my life. I'd had a bunch fall off. I think I'd hooked like ten or twelve, lost them at the boat, like everything you could possibly do to mess up. So it's just like. I was completely in the mindset you're talking about. Like, I just had to catch one of these things. I'm about to become a fishing guide. How can I take people permit fishing with a fly if I've never caught one myself? Blah, 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 blah. So we go to the Marquesas. I'm fishing with Jeffrey and my, my buddy Drew DeLashman. And it's cold and it's windy. It's like March 10th or 12th or something like that. We go cuda fish. We catch some cudas. And we go to the south side of the Marquesas. And I just happen to be up. We get a fish right in front of that big palm tree on that south side. We get a shot at a fish. And I make sort of like a mediocre cast. And the fish kind of comes over and... Swims away, doesn't look at it. And Jeffrey on the back is giving me this like, man, that was awesome. Great job. That was amazing. Holy smoke. You did so well. I remember thinking like, we're looking at Drew. I'm like, what? What? I didn't do well. I didn't catch anything. Five minutes later, another fish pops up. Do the same thing. Bam, I hook it. It land the first thing. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy got me thinking. Right. It was about to happen. And it wasn't and your it, fault. It was the fish's fault. Yeah, or it, maybe it was my fault. But it does. It didn't matter. He wanted you to keep your. He head wanted in the game. me to keep my head in the game, to keep my positive attitude. And I mean, I remember thinking that lesson. Like I went from thinking like this guy's insane to catching my first permanent fly within you know just a couple minutes right after that. And it can't be a coincidence. I mean, positivity is just for sure. 
just goes so well. I mean, it's just, you know, your next cast is the only thing, only one that matters. What is your greatest uh, guiding moment? I don't know, man. That's a tough one. I'll tell you what it was. It's in one of those tournaments. You hadn't had a shot all week, and you took a shot at going to the Marquesas. Oh, yeah. And the, that was a good one. And you got one shot. Yeah, we got one shot. And yeah. won the tournament. I've always thought that was like, man, I used to joke before we ever won anything. Like, as a fishing guide, that's what I wanted to do. Because I heard stories of Scott and Greg winning a tournament on one shot. And I'm like, dude, that's got to be the best. Like, it's the, the perfect example of So tell me about that teamwork. day. So, I mean, it was the it was the March 2017 March Merkin. One of those forecasts that you see the day before or the week before you're like, oh man, this is going to be a grind, you know, in the sixties going down to the fifties, windy. windy, bad light. So the first day we're fishing and I do my usual things, the program I've been running all winter. And I think we bumped two or three fish, didn't get a shot. It just didn't happen. Right. The next day I'm like, nah, man, I know one place there's going to be some more, maybe some warm water. In the Marquesas, you know, that North, you get in the lee of the North side. And for some reason, not for, obviously, like a, for obvious reasons, just a little bit warmer. It's like, like a couple little, degrees warmer. A little bit of a bathtub over yeah, there. If you yeah. Will. I mean, it's just out of the wind yeah. and it's dark grass and it's going to be a sunny day. I'm like, this is the only shot I can think of. You know, it can't get any worse than what we did yesterday. Right. But that's always helps. As a fishing guy, like a really bad day of fishing is it's an opportunity because it can't be worse than the next day. So you and might it's a well, long run too. And it's a long I mean, run. It was windy. You know, we didn't have, I figured we're not going to get away from all the boats because not many people are going to want to run out there with blowing north at 20 or north, northeast at 20, whatever it was at the time. And we pull around all day and there's kudas everywhere. Like we're just both thinking, man, we should just go kuda fishing. This is great. We keep plugging. We work up to the, you know, northeast corner inside. And I'm like, oh, that holy, holy shit, there's a fish coming. Like I'm as, I'm as surprised today there's an actual right. fish there. Oh my God, this is and working. We, and we have one little lane of light, you know, it's glare. It's glare and there's this one lane and the fish is swimming and it gets right to the edge of the glare line, stops, turns around and just keeps swimming straight up that line of viz we have. It's straight into the wind is the problem. And that has a 10 weight and we're throwing and we're throwing and we're throwing. It was probably legitimate 20 casts at wow. the fish. And it just kept feeding away and feeding away. And finally that one cast got, into, I don't know how Nat made the cast. I mean, it was blowing 20, 25. Making, and we never got close. I couldn't get super close. It was probably a 70 foot cast. I mean, it was super hard cast. And he, he got there. The fish turned tight. Got him. Swims away. Of course, Nat's, you know, Nat always goes wild. Does when he? he? Catches, yes. He wouldn't, that looks like a cool cast. But when he hooks a fish, he's just like a ball of nerves. What's like, he do? Always, I mean, I, I mean, he's always, you can tell he tenses right up. Like you could, you could see his like. His, Does he his, get like, quiet? He, he gets quiet. He gets tense. And this this whole fight was like super, you know, because we're knowing that's this is the fish that's going to win. It's, it's going to be the only fish caught. Possibly. It's probably going to be the only, and it's not a little one. It's a big one. So if it was, you know, if it was a five pounder, there's always a chance somebody catches a six pounder. This was, you know, I think it was probably twenty five pounds, twenty six pounds. A nice big fish. So he's super quiet the whole time. Super quiet. Super quiet. Finally get it next to the boat. One thing, whenever we hook a fish, I start the engine immediately. Once that fish is on the reel, I'm jumping down and starting the engine. So we've been idling after this thing for a while, and. It gets the boat. And I normally don't like take that net shot unless they're right up on the surface. And Sideways. Yeah, just sort of right on the surface. It's a nice easy thing. I don't right. like that lunge because I think you're going to get more negatives and if, positives. If they're still vertical, they have that power to still surf. Right. So I mean, they're like that. They're the fish like gets that. next to the boat. Nat just, Nat just screams, just do it. Just do get it. Him. Just do it. So I stick the net down and the fish just swims right into it. Yo, baby. <laughs> so that's what Nat's saying. Like Nat starts screaming and hooting and hollering. And the fish is in the water. And I take a little sort of cinematic moment. I'm like, wait for it. I lifted the fish up and into the boat. And I'm like, now nah, you can start celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how you say that because it's until it's in the boat, it's, it's not in the boat. It's not until that thing's in the cockpit. 
is not in the boat. Here's a story that happened to Timmy Hoover and I one time in the Gold Cup. We had a really big fish, um, and Timmy had gaffed it. But instead of taking that one shot, you gaff the fish. He's in the boat right now. It's one move through the through the lower jaw and keep the momentum going and keep them coming in. And Timmy gaffed his fish and pulled him up next to the gunnel and held the like fish there for a the second. Gunnel, right. Yeah, he had the gaff not against. He didn't have him pinned. He just okay. had him up here. But he just there was a big pause. The fish shook his head. The fly fell out, and the and Timmy dropped the gaff, and the fish swam off with our gaff. Oh boy! And it's a hundred twenty some pound <laughs> oh fish, so we get two hundred points for a release, a thousand points swim away, and we lose <laughs> the gold cup by eight ounces. Oh wow. Stuff happens. Yeah, it should happen. Yeah, right, exactly. What if you can give, you know, the audience, you know, maybe a couple of things that they can think about to help them become a better permit fisherman? What might those things be? Oh, I think first of all, it's just the belief that they're catchable. I mean, a permit are more catchable now than ever been. You know, so just when you see a shot, think you're gonna catch it. I mean, it's it's. I know it's. You can just trick yourself. Like every time you see a shot, think you're gonna catch that fish. Like you can, I always think I have a couple of clients that the wind's over the right shoulder. They'll tell me you can't do something. Like you can't say I can't. You just say I'm going to try. So just expect to do the things you need to do. So, I mean, that's one thing is a headset, like sure. a mindset. Just believe you're going to catch permit because you can catch them. They're very, very catchable. The hard part to catching was getting the fly there. So you, the more you practice your cast, the better your casting is. And both sides. So you have dexterity. Right, yeah. Back, you know, back hands. I mean, I, God bless anybody who can catch with both cast with both hands, but having a backhand is of huge importance, but get your casting better. And if you get that backhand, per, so many permits spook when the boat moves. I think that's the moment when most permits spook or get nervous or get tweaked is what I do with the boat. You got to push harder to get to them or something. Right. So if, if somebody doesn't have a backhand, and they can't cast and I got to spin enough. the boat right. to set up the right hand. Those fish feel it immediately. So if you get a backhand, you're going to catch literally 50% more fish. Tell me about your DNA. You were telling me that that your father fished, your grandfather, I think, was a well, My grandfather fisherman. was a fisherman. My, grand, my grandfather was the only one who sort of fished in the family. So, I mean, he was a big game fisherman. He grew up in rural North Dakota and became a doctor and moved to Omaha and practiced for years and finally lived with us when we were in Maryland. Did he teach you how to fish when you he were did, younger? He did not teach me how to fish. So where did you get the, uh, the, the bug? I mean, I remember being in a Caldors, which is sort of like a Kmart equivalent. It was like a regional... And I'm walking through the sporting goods aisle, and I see this like twenty dollar fiberglass fire rod with a reel, you know, just garbage level line reel, one of those twenty dollar. I'm like, I just want that. You didn't know anything about fishing. You just wanted know, a fishing rod. I didn't know anything about anything. I just, you were like, a kid. I, saw, you wanted to go f- I wasn't even a kid. I was in high school. Like I wasn't even a kid. Like I didn't fish growing up, really, other than like messing with worms occasionally. Like it just wasn't something anybody I knew did. Nobody fished where I grew up in Baltimore. It didn't, and I saw that rod, and I'm like, I just want that thing. <laughs> and I bought it, and I was terrible. But I was fortunate enough to at least have a one trout river, the Gunpowder River, which is about 20 minutes from my house growing up. So by the time I got to college, I got a little bit more adept at it. And I would go up in the summers, you know, fish a sulfur hatch or to fish a caddis hatch or something like that. But it took me, a, I mean, a pathetically long time to catch my first trout. I mean, embarrassingly long time to catch. Are you first a good one. athlete? I know that you participated in a bunch of sports. Oh, I mean, I'm like a, you're a, your average guy, good athlete, you know, was never going to go. But anything, you're crazy but about watching sports. I on love TV. sports. I mean, I love playing sports. I played sports growing up. I mean, I, yeah, I love sports. Sport is a huge part of my life. It's a huge part of my family's life. I mean, I think most life, most lessons you learn in sports, can feed you really well for the rest of your life. 
as team far sports. as teamwork, teamwork, personal, you know, just work, learning how to do work. It hurts a lot of times, literally right. in sports, it hurts. I mean, you need to go running. If you want to get shaped to play soccer, it's going to physically hurt you. And I think you're pretty good at leaning into the pain. Yeah. Well, yeah I love pain. Yeah. I love the. You What's know, more, your favorite pain? Probably mental anxiety. Really? <laughs> yeah. You sort of feed off of it. Like, you know, really? Just a, yeah. I mean, that's where, that's my, that's where you, appear, my, you appear to be so cool. I know, right? It's weird. But I mean, that's, that's, where, the, not. that's where the fire comes from. It's sort of like to just sort of like, you have that doubt, constant doubt that I stink. I'm bad at this. I'm not any good at this. Even after all these wins. Oh, it doesn't make any difference. Like always, it's like, I'm not good at this. So do you, it's, do you it's think just every, the, Do you think everybody has that? I don't I'm not worried about everybody. I'm just going to worry about me. No, that's that, a good way. A, I mean, right. There's a lot of things you can't. I worry about the things I can control. Right. And I can't control other people's heads. So, but I know that that's what that's the fuel that I have. So that's your weakest link? It's probably like anything. Like you're probably your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. You know, the times when you focus on the fact that you feel like you don't know everything. There's the days I, you know, the week, maybe I have a bad week of fishing. because I kept doubting what I was doing. And then you have a good, you know, at the same time, that, that same doubt will lead to, you know, getting better at it if you sort of just face it and move on with it. But that's my, you know, just that constant, like, I'm not any good. I mean, I have 40 journals. I've been writing every single day of fishing. And half of it's just so I can, like, work through in my head what I did right or what I didn't, what I did it wrong, like, on a day-to-day basis. No kidding. Yeah. How do you work yourself out of out of a hole if you're if you're in that hole? Just keep pushing. I mean, like the whole... Steve Huff thing, just keep pushing until you find a fish. I mean, it's or the fish find you. I mean, it's just as simple as just just keep working. It's amazing how many flats guides have Steve is such a yeah. Such it's, sort of, a, it's like the Babe Ruth of our sport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and they can't ever. There's never going to be another Steve. I mean, he came at a time and a place when this you know the, this fishing was was formed enough to be a thing, but was still unformed enough for him to shape it. Right. In a way that that's never going to happen again. Just like there's never going to be another Babe Ruth. You know, there's great baseball players after Babe Ruth, but there's never been, you know, there's never been that that guy. And Steve's our guy. Right. Because he was, you know, the time, the place and his effort and his work and everything you put into it. Right. Who do you fear most on the water in a tournament? Other guides and other anglers that well, I you mean, have I, ultimate respect for? Well, there's, well, I've tried to remove that in, aspect of in, thinking. In, in tournament fishing, I try to, it's like, it's like golf. You can't do anything to the other boats to make them, Perform. to affect them. You right. can't do it. It's like a golf course. It's like Tiger Woods out there. I bet Tiger's probably wasn't worried at all about anybody other than himself. And that's sort of the focus I have. It's like, I just want to do everything I can do, get as many shots as I can or get the right shots or catch as many fish. But it's just about what I'm doing. I'm not worried. I try to remove all of that. I don't worry about the scoreboard. I mean, a lot of times I don't look at the scoreboard. I don't want to know what the scoreboard is. I just want to do what I'm going to do. And for the X number of time, and just see see what happens. See how it because you, again, we have no I have no control over what other boats do. In the yeah, because it's interesting. I mean, if you take a look at a tournament, I was always I I know who was in the tournament. They always fished with the same guides, and there would be a certain guide that I I would fear more than the angler, and or an angler that was really good, but with right, a I know what you're subpar guide. But it was that team of an A angler and an A guy that you're going to go, if I beat them, I got a good chance to win. Yeah, I know what you're saying. But I, I try to remove all of that from my, and again, you know, permit tournaments are different. Like in a tournament tournament, I'm not competing at all really because I'm running so far away from other people. Like what, like, I don't know what, 
95% of the term is, I don't know where they're fishing. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know anything about their program. But in permit terms, I begin, I'm just trying to remove all of that because I'm just doing what the guy on the bow and what I am trying to do it the best that I can. And if right. it works, fantastic. If it doesn't work, at least I can sort of hold my head up. Well, that's a very smart way to approach right. it for sure. Because that's all you can do is control. That's all you can do. do. And the, 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 one of the fallbacks, I think, in tournaments is, you know, you can not scoreboard watching is the right thing, but doing something that you wouldn't do because of what somebody else did. If that makes sense. Like, right. Oh, for sure. Right. You just, you can't worry. You just got to do your stuff. And yeah. if it works, yeah, like I said, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's uh, when I first started fishing with Harry. I mean, I fished with Harry Spear in only three tournaments, two bonefish and one, one gold cup. And I asked him, I said, so w- what are we going to do differently? Cause I, I was new to the game. He said, we're just going to go fishing. Whatever happens, happens. And at the end of the day, you look up and that's where you are. Um, a really cool tournament for Timmy Hoover and I, like the day you went to the Marquesas, got one shot and won that tournament. We were in the Gold Cup, I think it was a Wednesday, and we were on Long Key and there's not a fish in sight. We haven't seen a fish for three hours, four hours, whatever. And it's like noon, 1230. And Timmy says, we got to make a run. I said, sit down. He says, sit down. And I knew the way he said it, it was going to be something. It was going to be dramatic. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to the lower keys. I'm going to look at all the fish we're going to run by to get down there. Right, yeah, yeah. We're going to get there. We're going to have an hour to fish. And then we got to come home. And he said, yeah, but there's a couple down there. And I think we can get one. We ran all the way down there. We had two shots and caught two big weight fish and ran home. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's what I'm talking about, a team, you know, where you can really rely on each other and trust. Yeah, trust is a huge part of it. Right. And I, and I think the one the, the one great thing in tournaments is is afterwards when you have like those adventure moments or just those perfect moments of like your teamwork with a very real thing at the end of it, points on a scoreboard in an event that, I mean, sadly for our species, it legitimizes a little bit more. You have those perfect moments with other people, but they don't feel quite as perfect if there's not other people paying attention and watching those score. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. But the, I mean, the great things in those tournaments to me is like after they're done at the time, I don't necessarily feel them, but afterwards you sort of look back and you're like, wow, that was, that was cool. That was really, really cool. I'm glad I did that. Like, that was awesome. Like, yes. Cause it, it really meant a lot. Right. And yeah. you were successful. Uh, what do you see in, you know, since you're not tur- fishing tournament, uh, tarpon tournaments any longer, what do you see in this next short period of time that you're trying to do differently than you have in the past, if anything, in specifically? Well, a lot of it just sort of trying to find events. You know, there's so many events in tarpon fishing that happen around those tournaments, you know, be it, you know, crab hatches, worm hatches, guppy hatches. And those things are awesome and they happen in more places than I think any of us even realize. And while I'm training, you know, doing my homework for a tournament, I'm not worried about them. Like if there's a guppy hatch in Mooney Harbor, day one of the Gold Cup, it's, it's just not going to happen. Like, so I don't even bother looking for those things, you know, just right. in that regard. I mean, there's just neat little things that happen or neat little spots that aren't necessarily good for a tournament because they're not super reliable or they're not convenient when you're leaving out of Lorelei trying to run someplace. Something that happens at 6.30 in the morning in the lower keys it's, it's of no consequence. Right. Right. You know, so, I mean... It's hard to predict like what I want to do. I just want to have the freedom to sort of do yeah, different things other than, I mean, sitting on the ocean is great, but of all the things in tarpon fishing, I think I like sitting on the ocean the least. 
I mean, it just it's funny. I, I just gets I just get so bored. Really. And the better the fishing is, sometimes the more bored I get. It's just sort of like this, the same shot over and over again. And I know it's like, do you like the 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 worm fishing? The yeah, double handed worm. It's super fishing. cool, but yeah, I mean, it's really really neat. But it just doesn't capture. I mean, it's just again part of it's because. I think there's like the, the puzzle pieces are like a lot of the big puzzle pieces. I'm less concerned about the technical aspects of how to do it and more concerned about where it's being done. And mm-hmm. Which, where's your favorite place to go out back or out? Probably out ba- back. Basins. Yeah. I mean, if you had to make a rash, a, general, a, laid, up, yeah. a laid up fish. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love laid up fish. I mean, it's laid you? up fish and current is about my favorite thing. In the how world. can you not? Right. Right. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, but I do know the thing I like the least and that's sitting on the ocean. It just drives me. Good. Then I, mad good then I want more space for you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's so much fun to to see you and and uh, some of the other buddies, you know, running around down here. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't fish tournaments anymore. Nikki fishes only one, but just being a down here in this zip code that I learned 35 years ago with Harry Spear, and getting to know all of you guys. Um, it's and and periodically having a chance to sit down and visit, which is not happening very Doesn't often. Very There's often, not a big right. round table like, and that's one of the things I love about tournaments because at the end of the tournament, you can sit there and have a cocktail and say, and it's fish talk. Right. It's just storytelling. And Bobby Branham was up at our house the other day, and he said, "You know what? I just love talking about fish stories. <laughs> you know, how, how can you not like a good fish story? You know, you know, my favorite, my least favorite part of a tournament is." is sitting around with everyone talking fish stories. Like, I just like, I mean, I know it's like, I go to those things. I want to be the guy in the back corner closest to the door. As soon as it's over, I can you walk run out and I, run out and go home. Like, I, I mean, I just, I just, well, you're tired. Like it. It's not even that. I just don't, I just, that's just not, I just don't like those things. I was in school. I was always a guy sitting as close to the door as possible. Really? I don't, I don't like shy? those things. I, I mean, I, I mean, I guess you can call it that, whatever you want to call it, but I just don't care for those things. At all, you know, and I'm. I'm and pre- I think I come off as probably standoffish. You know, but to, to I just tell you the truth, I'm not it. a big. I, you know, I too, I kind of like. But you're Andy, yeah. though. You're Andy. You're the center of it, man. <laughs> no, you're Andy. No, no. <laughs> I mean, and you're that, always going to be. Andy. Is that a good thing or a it bad is a thing? great thing? There's only one Andy, and you're it. Man. Just <laughs> oh, enjoy God. it. <laughs> Way to throw me a bone. <laughs> Here's something. I so give me your take on Jeffrey Cardness. He was kind of a mentor. You worked for him. Yeah, I, I, Jeffrey was my first sort of employer. I so I came down here the fall of '97, and they had an ad in the Key West Citizen. I walked in, and somehow I got the job, and I worked there till March of 2000. And you know, he was my boss the whole time. He had a couple right. shops, and he had just had one shop. But yeah, he was my boss the whole time. So, right. I mean, yeah. So Je- I mean, Jeffrey's a great. I think he's a great writer. I think his fishing guide, his, you know, I think he did, I don't know if he had the range of a lot of the fishing guides, but he, what he did, he did very, very well. Right. And I hold him in the highest regard, particularly the whole, the whole mental aspect of it, you know, right. how he dealt with his clients and how he dealt with getting them to the point that to catch a fish, I think is stuff I learned from him. I'll put it that way. What'd you think of his book, Marquesa? I love it. I so I never, I didn't know Jeffrey uh, until I read the book Marquesa. So I read this fabulous little fishing book about the green room and the Marquesas. And at the time I had a fishing show, I called him up. I said, Jeffrey, you, you know, my name is Andy Mill. I read your book. You, we have this little fishing show. I would love to have you go and take the Huck Finn, your little houseboat over, and let's go film you fishing the Marquesas out of your little houseboat. And we did. Right. And it was just so awesome. Um, 
and then I wanted him to be on our podcast. And I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't mind this. Uh, I mean, he doesn't want to. If he does, it doesn't matter. We're going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> uh, so I asked, I, I text Jeffrey. I'm telling him, you know, because he's sailing around the world right now. He's yeah. in the process of getting, you know, quite far around. I said, Jeffrey, we got all these great stories. We need your story. And we had had, you know, this experience together. So he texts me that back. I think this is kind of interesting for the audience, too. He goes, Hello, Andy. Uh, it's great to hear from you. I'm in Florida. My dad, 94, fell and broke his femur. He needs help becoming mobile again. He's strong. He was playing tennis a week before the accident. Thank you for your invitation to Millhouse. I am focused on family concerns right now. I have been away for so long. I will head back to Turkey and Flying Fish, the name of his boat, after the new year, if all is okay with my family. My thoughts about fishing and nature in general have changed in the past years as I have been sailing around the world. I am more comfortable watching fish these days instead of trying to hook them. No judgments. I would never suggest to anyone else how they should interact with and feel about nature. I just don't want to have, I just don't have the same desire to scare the shit out of fish as I once did. I realize this can be interpreted as a hypocrite, a hypocritical view coming from a guy who once made fishing his life's work. I will always be grateful for those days and to you and the, by the way, for graciously helping me to advance that career. I never did. We just did a TV show together. Uh, Please understand I'm not envelogizing about people who fish. It's just been a personal evolution for me, a desire to become more of a fish and less of a fisherman. Thanks again, Andy, and warm regards to your family, Jeffrey. Do you see yourself ever? I, I get that. I know you get that. I mean, I get it in a very real way. And I mean, I think it's sadly part of our, It's. I mean, it's in our DNA that I can't right now look at fish and not want to catch them. I can't. I get it. I should. Yeah. But I just can't. Like, I like I can't go out. I, mean, I talk to people about like, wouldn't it be great to get all these photos of permit doing their cool things? And I'm like, I've tried. I just can't do it. Like I have to have a rod or I have to be pushing a boat and I have to do this. Right. And whether that's, you know, I don't want to put a label on it. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. You're just not at that level yet. Right. Or maybe, maybe I never will be. Right. I mean. But I understand. I understand. I understand what he's saying. Right. I fully get what he's saying. And I, you know, having yeah. to, you know, it's, it's obviously a big thing to you know it's a big shift and i get the shift but i don't i'm i I, as of right now there's no way i can i'm not there yet and i don't know if i'll ever be that way i don't know if i want to be that way yeah um but i get it i was really lucky to have a son that really enjoys fishing and once i got out of tournaments I don't think I would have fished nearly as much as i have been over these last number of years without nikki there in the bow of my boat And that has taken a whole new level of perspective for me as a fisherman to basically feed all this into him and see it successfully received. And see where he goes. See where he goes with it. it. How do you feel about your kids and fishing? I mean, I don't want to push fishing on any of them, you know, but I like being on the water with them. And it'd be fantastic if, you know. If they get it. If they, yeah, if they want, if they want to go do it, but whatever they want to go do, I'm fine. Fully into it. We spent most of the time this summer lobstering and snorkeling the reef and, you know, trying to find shipwrecks and doing all that. Oh, cool. And it's great, you know, so in the water chasing stuff, looking, hunting. Exactly. I mean, flats fishing is like any kind of hunting. It's just, it's like anything, you know, walk beachcomber looking for sea beans is hunting. Right. You know, looking for lizards is hunting. I mean, hunting is sort of, again, like I said, it's just what our species does for better, for worse. 
that's what we do. We're the world's greatest hunter. We're the world's greatest predator. And I, whether people lose sight of that, and that's one thing I tell my clients, remember, we are the apex predator that's ever lived on this planet. I mean, just look what we've done to it right? by doing it. But at least we can realize that and focus on that and, you know, accept the fact that that's what we do. And now it's our responsibility to preserve it. As any as good hunter, as any good hunter needs to do. I mean, right. like, I mean, that's what you have to do if you want to keep doing it. Right. And I mean, I, back to the guide association briefly, the one conceit we had when we started that guide association was that the number one way for mankind to interact with the natural environment in, in the ocean way is fly fishing, shallow water fly fishing. We catch so little. We have as small a footprint as I think you could possibly have while still interacting in a very real way, like, and generating a lot of income. Income. I mean, it's that's the number one conceit of our guide association, right or wrong. That's the conceit of it. You know that we. It's a mission. That's kind I mean, of a mission. And and we're low density. You know, we all get too close to one. I mean, so it's a, it's a sport that I think is compatible in a lot of ways with what's the what's facing the world. Right. That a lot of other means of doing things are not necessarily that way unless they rethink how they do them but you know it's just a, i mean that's that's why i think i sort of gravitated it i mean it's a way i can interact exactly how i want to interact involves a lot of skill a lot of effort a lot of time but the footprint we leave is pretty small yeah and it's there it's obviously there i'm not gonna lie i mean we kill fish i mean that's just part of fishing you're gonna right. kill fish whether want whether you want to or you don't want to and i have to admit i kind of like watching it sometimes like I don't mind watching the fish dive around again, getting eaten by a shark because it's yeah, it's pretty watching pretty awesome. nature. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, sh and sharks got to eat too. Let's remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so I can feel okay the next time I got to. Uh, that happens. Yeah, I mean, I guess stuff I, happens. I mean, you think back like what? What have I read someplace said in an un, an unmolested ecosystem, something like ninety percent of the biomass is apex predators. Somebody's getting eaten every day. Somebody's constantly getting eaten. We're just, we live in a world that's so far removed from what it's supposed to look like that we forget that those big sharks are supposed to be there eating. Yeah. Yeah. Harry, Harry Spear once said, it's a, it's a land and a world of the fast and the dead. That's a good. You're way not to put fast, that. you're dead. Well, it's great. It's great hanging with you. Well, thank thank you so me. much. You're a great pal to not only us, your fellow guides and anglers, but to the environment. Well, thank you. And, and I so much appreciate you. And before I go, you got to get your old television show out there somewhere. We had fun, right? Well, I mean, like, no, I'm talking about the one you did for the Outdoor Channel. Oh, uh, Sportsman's Journal? I mean, I watched that thing in college. Did you? I remember, like, my mom had that channel. I'd come back and, like, I would, like, okay, it's Friday night. It's 9 o'clock. It's going to be on. I can't wait to watch the show. No kidding. And they're not, you can't find them anywhere. Like, yeah. They're not on the internet. It's like the only fishing show that's not on the internet. So you get that, get that damn thing on the internet. So what was it? So what was it like when we <laughs> finally <hashtag>. got to, <laughs> yeah. so what was it like when we finally got to fish together and chasing silver? It was just surreal. It was in so much fun. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun. I mean, but again, the whole time that little worm was in the back of my head the whole time, you know, gnawing away at me. So <laughs> just remember that whatever I look like, the worm was back there. You the man. Thank you. Thanks, John. His fishing success aside, I think it's clear why everyone wants to fish with O'Hearn. One day, hopefully Nikki and I both will share a day in the water with him. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.